Welcome to ChristianBook.com. My name is Amy Courage, and we are here talking with author Frank Viola. We're talking about his newest book that he's written with Leonard Sweet. It is called Jesus Manifesto, Restoring the Supremacy and Sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And Frank, we're really glad to have you here with us today talking about the book. My pleasure. Great. And um, now let's back up just a little bit. Now, Jesus Manifesto is, is based on an article that you posted online, and it received a half a million views in just eight weeks. Uh, why do you think that it touched such a nerve among mm. people? I think all Christians have an instinct toward Jesus Christ, their Lord. If we as God's people are, are in tune with the Lord, we have a heart for him, then our ears perk up. Mm-hmm. when Christ is magnified or revealed or talked about in a positive way. You know, it's it's kind of like you're in love with someone or you're fascinated by them, and if there's a conversation going on about that person, mm-hmm. right away you're interested. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and that's the way we Christians are with our Lord Jesus. What we did, if I can give you a little bit of story, when Sweet and I began talking back in August of 2008, and we were just making observations as we conversed about the different movements going on in the Christian world today. And one of the things said in that conversation was the statement, the missing ingredient of, and there were certain movements mentioned, mm-hmm. the missing ingredient is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember both of us sort of just came alive when mm-hmm. that statement was made. And we said, you know what, we really need to... We need to pursue this. We, we need to find a way to share this with God's people, uh, restoring the supremacy of Jesus, because we feel he's been lost sight of mm-hmm. in many ways, in many respects. And um, so we started to talk about it, and we actually uh, were speaking at a conference together at George Fox Seminary. It was a seminar, actually, in February of 2009, and we got to spend some personal time, and we talked about the Lord the whole time. Mm-hmm. And after that event, suddenly over an email conversation, the idea was born that we would put our heart, we would put our burden, we would put what was stirring in us about the preeminence of Christ mm-hmm. in an article. So we wrote this essay, I think it was about 2,000, 2,500 words. Uh, we wrote it in a matter of, I think it was about uh, 18 days, just a little over two weeks. Mm-hmm. We published it uh, on the Internet. Len likes to say, you know, Luther posted his 95 thesis on a door. Well, we posted ours on the Internet. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, that's the communication form of our day. So, <laughs> Right. So we, we had these 10 theses. Instead of 95, we had 10. And uh, it was all about coming back to center, coming back to this person, Christ. We posted it on June 22, 2009, and immediately... It went viral. Mm-hmm. People just started reading it and passing it on, and someone did a count and found that you know, half a million people had read it in a short period of time. And as we continued to get responses from folks, most of which were very positive, uh, it was very clear that, that the Lord's people who had read that piece were wanting more talk more about this, unravel it, expand it, unpack it. Mm-hmm. Thus the book was born. And were you surprised by the number of people who, you know, said things like, I've been a Christian for 30 years and I haven't heard this before, or, you know? On one side of my personage, I guess, and somewhere in me, I am always shocked at that. 
mm-hmm. because it just demonstrates how far we have strayed in getting away from the absolute narrow focus of the person of Christ. We mention him, but in many cases, he is but a footnote. He is but a side dish, or he's a stamp of approval. And what's really on the throne is some other thing. And I'm not talking about worldly stuff. I'm talking about religious things that we chase and we emphasize and we get all excited about. We get more excited about those things than Christ. But the other part of me, the other part of me is not surprised because our Lord Jesus, I feel, and Len feels in many, many ways has gotten shortchanged. I know in my own experience, I was a Christian for many years, a part of many different denominations. I'm very eclectic Mm -hmm. concerning my religious background. And, you know, I was part of one group, and their whole shtick was the gifts of the Spirit, you know, and the Holy Spirit, and that's, you know, miracles and signs and wonders. And that's what was taking the spotlight. Mm-hmm. That's what everybody was jazzed about. That's what everybody was excited about. And I got involved in another group, and they were all into end-time theology, and the room would light up when you talk about 666. <laughs> and, oh, how can we figure out Revelation and what about the toe and the head of the beast? And, you know, right, right. Ezekiel and Daniel and, oh, let's figure this out. We've got charts and graphs. And, and that was the thing that everybody was chasing on that end. And, and then I was in another group, and it was all about evangelism. I get people saved. You know, how many people have you led to the Lord? How many right, people have you right. shared Jesus with? And the guilt and the condemnation. And the Lord Jesus Christ was nowhere to be found in any of that except maybe as a little end note somewhere. Right. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And we, we Christians, boy, we can chase a lot of stuff and get jazzed about a lot of things, and that's the point. They are just things. But Christ and Christ alone should be our only pursuit. And everything else, evangelism, spiritual gifts, leadership principles, whatever it is, they all fall in their proper place as they are eclipsed by the sight of him, and they are properly aligned with pursuing and knowing him. And now why do you think that this understanding of Christianity as Jesus isn't more prevalent? You know, why do you think we've kind of lost track? Well, you know, that's a good question, isn't it? I think one of the one of the reasons, and, and dovetailing on what I was saying before in my own experience, that's what I was hearing everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. that's what the preachers were preaching to me in the various churches I was a part of. And this is not to say that all preachers do this. I'm just saying in my experience. And they learn from other leaders, and they learn from other leaders. We learn based on what we hear and who we're around. Mm-hmm. But deep down, at least for me, there was this instinct, there was this yearning, there has to be more than this. Right. There's got to be more than this. And I didn't realize it at the time, and I couldn't articulate it, but it was it was an instinct for Jesus Christ. It was a yearning for him. Mm-hmm. Not all the stuff about him, but him. It was around 92 that, that I heard someone present Christ like I'd never heard before. And I had that same testimony. I've been a Christian for 30 years. I've never heard anybody exalt the glories of Jesus this way, and it just left me undone. I was wrecked, and I said, boy, this Lord is much larger than I thought. Mm. He's more comprehensive. He's more incredible. He's amazing. And he fills the whole picture. And then I began to read the Bible, and uh, Jesus Christ appeared on every page even in the Old Testament. Mm. And Jesus said that, didn't he? He said all Scripture, all of it, and he's talking about the Old Testament, 
all of it points to me. Right. That was actually one of the most um, fascinating things I found in the early part of the book was that that uh, that connection between the Old Testament and what was it Charles Spurgeon said that he yeah that you could find Christ in pretty much every verse one yeah. way or another. Yes, he did. Him and, and old John Calvin, you know, it's, it's a road map to Jesus Christ. The way we put it in the in the book is that it's a compass and only points in one direction, and that is Jesus. He it really truly is found everywhere if we have eyes to see him and mm. if we understand how the Old Testament writers were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit was pointing to was, was Jesus. Right. You know, in pictures and types and shadows and so forth. It's rather incredible. It gave me, when I began to see this, it gave me a brand new Bible. Mm. And it was exciting. Right. Because, you know, I can read about Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. It no longer was about creation versus evolution. Right. As cool as that might be, it was about Jesus Christ and his bride. And Eve, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, is a picture of the church. Mm. And we learn that the church, according to Ephesians 1, was in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then we see Adam being put to sleep, which is a picture of death. Mm. And out of his side, God pulls out a woman mm. <laughs> who had been in him before she appeared. Right. And Paul says... Adam, in Romans 5, he says, Adam is a figure of the one who was to come. And Jesus himself is the second man, the last Adam. He's a picture of, of Christ. And, uh, you know, you look at this and you think, oh, my goodness. And when, when Jesus is on the cross and his side is pierced, mm -hmm. and out of it flows blood and water, the blood for redemption and the water for life, the Bible becomes a new book. Right, <laughs> right. It's that's cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was cool to read about that, and also the image of you know, kind of Jesus being the new Israel, mm. and representing, you know, in a way that the perfected Israel. Yeah, um, and that's true. The whole story of Israel in the Old Testament—it's all echoed and replayed in Jesus. You know. He's the new Jacob. He takes 12 disciples. Well, Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel. Right. He's in the wilderness being tempted. And, uh, well, Israel was in the wilderness being tempted. The prophet says, out of Egypt have I called my son. Mm. Hosea, he's talking about Israel. Well, Matthew quotes that to refer to Jesus Christ. It's just amazing to see all the parallels of the Old Testament. For years, I thought... <laughs> And I was taught this, that the Old Testament is about all these different stories and different lessons and laws and rules and all this. But when you see the greatness of Christ and that all Scripture points to him, the Old Testament is really only about one thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's about our Lord mm -hmm. and uh, who he is in so many aspects. You know, all the sacrifices uh, that Israel had to offer. There were many different ones. There was the meal offering, the trespass offering, the sin offering. You know, you had bullocks, you had goats, you had sheep, right. uh, lambs, doves, and, and, and on and on. <laughs> All of it speaks yeah. of the different aspects of Christ in his vast sacrifice for us. It's just incredible. Mm. Yeah, I really, I, that was pretty cool. I enjoyed reading that part, um, particularly. Um, moving on a little bit. Uh, you say that genuine Christianity is learning to live by an indwelling Christ. And um, what does that mean, and how does that look different than maybe what we have been doing? Yeah. 
You know, we point out in the book that Jesus himself, when he was on this earth, and we all want to be like Jesus, we all want to try to do what he did and, and act like him. Mm. He showed us how he did what he did. Uh, he told us how he did what he did. And it wasn't it wasn't this. He didn't go around Galilee and Judea with a WWFD bracelet on his wrist <laughs> asking, now what would the Father do in this situation? Right. That's not how he lived the Christian life, or if you want to call it that. No, it was, what is the Father doing? Mm. What is the Father saying to me? Mm-hmm. And how is the Father leading me? I can do nothing except the Father does it through me. Jesus Christ lived by an indwelling Father. And the most incredible thing to me in the New Testament is that in his death and resurrection, he not only forgave us of all sins, Mm -hmm. but the passage moved from the Father to Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ to all who would believe upon him. Mm. And so what the Father was to Jesus, now Jesus in the Spirit is to us. He's our indwelling Lord. He became a life-giving Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 15, and he was now able in his resurrected state to impart himself inside every believer, everyone who's repented and believed. He now comes inside them. The way it looks different is this. We have Jesus Christ living in us if we're a true Christian. Mm -hmm. But if we've never been taught that, A, he lives in us, and, B, we can live by his life. Jesus said that, as the Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that partakes of me shall live by me. Mm -hmm. John 6. Well, if we don't know that... It's kind of like the guy who has a million dollars in his bank account, but he's never been shown his bank account. He just right. doesn't know it, you know? So so it doesn't do him much good. Mm-hmm. Then what happens is we try to live the Christian life ourselves, Right. By ourselves, And we actually are told in many quarters that we can do it if we just try hard enough. Right. If we read our Bibles long enough each day, if we pray long enough. If right. We, we do these spiritual church, disciplines. and Absolutely. You do all this stuff right. And the Christian life will work, and you'll have victory over everything, and you will be and live like Jesus. Well, guess what? I have not met a person on this planet (laughs) who can say with honesty, yep, it works for me. I tried it. I did it. I worked hard enough, and now I have arrived. No, uh, what it does is it causes us to see just how much of a failure we are. And we cannot live the Christian life. And Jesus said that. He said, without me, you can do nothing. What's interesting, too, is he said it about his own self. He says, without the Father, I can do nothing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So if we recognize that he lives in us and that the Christian life is, as Paul said, I'll quote Paul in Galatians, not I, Mm -hmm. but Christ lives in me. That is the secret to the Christian life. And that opens up a whole new universe, and that universe is learning how to live by an indwelling Lord. Mm. And the way it looks, you know, I mean, we can spend hours and hours and hours talking about what that means and how it works and how to get to it, but what it looks like is this. We turn around one day and we say, you know what, I'm not struggling with that thing anymore. Right. And I didn't even try. Right. I didn't even work or sweat. It just... The Lord has triumphed over it through me. The other thing is, 
we find ourselves in situations and we get we have these spiritual instincts we have these impulses we have these internal knowings and leadings and promptings i'll use scriptural language for this the pharisees reasoned but jesus perceived Mm. it's all throughout the new testament gospels the Mm. pharisees reasoned the disciples reasoned but jesus perceived he had an inward hearing turned on his inward ears were on and he had a way of perceiving and knowing he was following his father and every christian can do this every christian has christ in them and he speaks he is a speaking god he leads he guides and um, when we are tuned in to the radio station, as it were, and we know how to do that, then we find that we're not working, we're not sweating, we're not energizing. The labor is gone. We're simply following. Mm. And uh, he gives us both the power and the willingness to do uh, and fulfill his will, as Paul says in Philippians 2. And it's just a totally different way of living the Christian life. You know, one is us trying to do it sweating at it hard right right and being frustrated and failing and the other one is not i but christ lives in me right recognizing that we can't is is half the battle and recognizing that he can and he will is the other 45 percent and then the other five percent is learning how to listen and learning how to yield and learning how to follow right one of the things we point out in the book is that the presupposition of virtually every sermon preached today is that you can live the christian life if you just try hard enough mm. and that puts the focus and the emphasis on me i have to do and a lot of this is getting out of the way and yielding to someone else right uh, letting him do it he is capable he is alive and well uh, alive enough and well enough to live his life through us mm. it's awesome stuff um I want to dive in a little bit to, uh, let's see, which chapter is it? When we're talking about the um, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Yes. And I wanted to read a little excerpt from page 130. Mm-hmm. Let's see, here we are. The Christian religion is built on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Christian religion can be studied, studied using the same categories of thought used to study any other world religion. It can be analyzed just as Islam, Judaism, and Buddhism are analyzed. The difficulty with the Christian religion, like all religions, is that it makes it, its adherents think that they have now found the real knowledge of good and evil. Can you talk a little bit more about that concept? Because I thought it was really interesting. For many years, I was taught as a Christian that my job was to find out what's right and wrong. And, of course, you know, the Bible is given to me to discern that. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that depending on what tradition of the Christian faith you come from, certain things are wrong <laughs> to some traditions and certain things are right to others and right. vice versa. You know, uh, that's quite an interesting thing to observe. But my job is... To figure it all out and so when I'm in a situation I was taught getting back to the whole bracelet WWJD thing okay what would Jesus do and then now I start thinking through scriptures okay well what does the Bible say about this situation <laughs> what's the right thing what's the wrong thing right and then I have to exercise the proper judgment to make the correct decision and if I don't well then I'm, I stand condemned in mm-hmm. my action and that's living by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Remember, it's the tree of the knowledge of good. Mm. 
And <clears throat> you have this other tree there, and that's the tree of life, and that was the tree that we humans were meant and designed to live from. Right. And I put it this way, good, G-O-O-D, is a life form. Only God is good, and he is living. Mm. Remember Jesus was asked by someone, you know, a good master, and, and he had a question. And Jesus said, don't call me good. There's only one good. God is good. Mm. Good is a life form. And that tree of life, it didn't just give somebody the knowledge of good and evil. It, it gave them the life of goodness, right. which is God's life. And this gets back into living by Christ, living by the indwelling divine life of God that's given to every person who has been regenerated, born again. I come into a situation, and my, it's not all up to my brain now to try to, you know, remember Bible verses and analyze it and figure out what's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. I have an indwelling Lord, and I have an instinct not only to know what to do, but that gives me the power to do it. Mm -hmm. And, boy, that's a totally different way to live. And, mm. and now it, the Christian life becomes it becomes so much simpler. That's a word here. <laughs> it becomes simple. It's profound, but it's simple. It's, now it's not all about me trying to memorize and figure it out right. and try to be the judge of right or wrong. Now it's me yielding to the life of God in me. Mm. Uh, and that, by the way, will always go along with Scripture. It will never violate it. It will never contradict it. But the source is God himself, not my knowledge of what's right and wrong. Right. It's It seems to be a thing in human nature that actually prefers rules, I think, yes. and right I, and wrong. Um, it is. It's very natural in the sense it's part of our fallen human nature. It's not part of our divine nature where the, the Holy Spirit makes us new creatures in Christ. Right. But it is, you're right, it is part of fallen human beings, and every religion has it. Right. Every religion is eating from the tree of a knowledge of good and evil, including, unfortunately, the Christian religion. But, you know, we're not interested in the Christian religion. We're interested in Jesus Christ. Right, because it's, it's easier to say, okay, I'll be all right if I just don't do this. Rather than to say, I'm going to trust God, and he's going to show me what to do in every situation. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know what else, too, is when we live by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we become like Pharisees. We become self-righteous. See, because we think that we're doing the right thing. Right. And so now there's that self-righteousness, which, by the way, the Lord Jesus just does not like at all. Right. If there's anything that makes our Lord sick to his stomach. It is a self-righteous attitude. Mm -hmm. I have often said there's only one person in the universe who has the right to be self-righteous, and he isn't, mm -hmm. and that's Christ. Right, and actually that leads right into my next question, which is, um, you know, you feel that there's a lot of Phariseeism in the church today, and can you give an example of that? Um, sure. <laughs> can you give, you know, less than a hundred examples? I don't know. Yes. But well, I, I will admit I'm I'm a recovering Pharisee myself. So, you know, the Pharisees were separatists, mm -hmm. um, and I believe the word Pharisee actually is rooted in the word separation. And so they had this attitude that they were the divine dispensers of morality, and they kept themselves very pure in their own strength in an outward way, mm. and that's very important, it was an outward thing, 
and they felt like they had to separate themselves from the impure. Right. And that they would become contaminated if they engaged and had communion or fellowship or, or any kind of social in- interaction with sinners. Right. They were not sinners, you see. I say that facetiously, but in their eyes they're not sinners. And the problem with that is if you're not a sinner, you're not a candidate for the kingdom of God. Right. <laughs> you know, um, you've just locked yourself out. And Jesus basically told them that. Well, the way this plays out is that any time you see Christians taking on an attitude that, okay, these people are doing the wrong thing, we need to stay away from them. Right. We need to run away from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to... We need to make them feel bad and guilty and, you know, right. and, uh, we're superior and we're doing the right thing, they're doing the wrong thing. Then you have just adopted the self-righteous, judgmental attitude of the Pharisee. Jesus Christ turned the whole idea of separation on its head. Hebrews says that he was separate from sinners, but, but he was the friend of sinners. Right. See? And so in his own life... He did not partake of whatever the sin was, but boy, he got his hands dirty. He ate with them. He hung out with them. He was their friend. And this is what drove the Pharisees up a wall, is that he would allow a prostitute, a woman of the night, not only to touch him, Mm -hmm. but to unbind her hair, which in that day was a scandal. Right. Pretty immodest. Yeah. And to pour perfume on him and wipe his feet with her hair that has just been unbound and kiss his feet, okay? He talks to a woman in public, which you're not supposed to do in that day if you're a good Jew. Not only is she a woman, which is strike one, she is divorced. And Samaritan. (laughs) (laughs) And not only divorced once, she's been divorced five times. And not only that, she's living in sin. And then, as you pointed out, she is a Samaritan. And Jews, not only do they not talk to women, they don't talk to divorcees, and surely, surely they do not talk to the lower class, in their view, they're barely human Samaritans. Jesus not only talks to her, he shares with her one of the most profound things about God that a human being can know. And he drinks her water and uses her utensils, and then he, he does the outrageous thing beyond all that. He goes to her own town and eats with them, mm. the Samaritans. Unbelievable. And that's our Lord. Right. And uh, totally antithetical to the spirit of the Pharisee. Right. I would have loved to have uh, heard the thoughts of the disciples right at that point, <laughs> because they were probably, you know, their world was rocked, too. Uh, Jesus, don't you know who she is? <laughs> well, I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were thinking to themselves, uh, maybe we got the wrong guy here. <laughs> uh, this, <laughs> we need to think about going back to our fishing nets. And uh, yeah, no, no question about it, because the things he would do were just so against the conventional wisdom and customs. Right. And what what was drilled in them is is young uh, Jewish men coming up. I mean, he broke it all. He just devastated it all. But see, there was something inside them where they knew this is not just some ordinary person. And you know what? What he's doing, 
something about that rings true inside me. Mm. And they followed him to the end. Right. I want to move a little up a little bit to talk about um, Christ and community and kind of talk a little bit more about churchy things. And um, I wanted to read an excerpt from um, page 144. Uh The occupation of every local assembly can be summed up in two words, discovering and displaying. That is, discovering and displaying Christ. This is the church's chief calling to this world, to manifest the mystery. The church is a tangible manifestation of Christ's life in the world today. Because the church is part of Christ, a revelation of Jesus will eventually lead to a revelation of his church. So can you talk a little bit about how this, I don't know, bring it back to the local church? Yes. It's interesting because knowing Christ in the way we're talking about, and we're we're talking about knowing him in a very intimate way, we're talking about living by his own life, and we're also talking about being his hands and his feet in this earth, which we hear said a lot, but uh, oftentimes it's just words. We can only know Christ in his fullness in the context of his body, Mm -hmm. in the context of a local body of believers that are truly enthroning him as their head and as their Lord. Because each of us have a part, uh, an aspect uh, of his fullness. We have... We're different parts of the body, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 12. You know, some of the eyes, some of the ears, some mm-hmm. of the hands, some of the feet. And the way we receive his fullness, the way we see his fullness, the way we come into all that is Christ's, it's not by just, you know, locking ourselves up in a room and reading the Bible and studying it. It's by receiving the part of Christ that my brothers and sisters have. And this gets into the whole question of how a church really should function, how a local assembly should really function. And um, I have done a lot of work on this in my other books, particularly a book entitled Reimagining Church, which Mm -hmm. you carry, Mm -hmm. and another one called Pagan Christianity, Mm -hmm. which you carry also. And these two books, you know, raise questions about the way we do church today. You know, is it really the way that Jesus meant it to be? And we come out answering that question, saying no, that what the Lord wants is a body of believers that really truly live as community, that take care of one another, that know one another very well, and are sharing the Lord together and in such a way where they're discovering Christ together. There's that word discovering. They're Mm -hmm. discovering Jesus together. You know, right now in this conversation you and I are having, we're discovering more of the Lord together because we're talking about Him. Mm-hmm. And there are things about Christ that you know, whether you realize it or not, that I need, I don't have. And the same thing with myself and others. And so when the body of Christ is functioning the way it should, there's a lot of sharing going on. There's mm-hmm. a lot of speaking from one another. You know, you don't have to be a professional clergyman to be able to teach something about the Lord to another believer let alone the lost. We're not talking about that right now. We're talking about the church. Consequently, it was a community, I'm talking about the church in the first century, mm-hmm. that had Christ living in them, and their curriculum was learning Jesus together. And they did that by sharing the Lord, 
they did it by sharing their discoveries of the Lord with one another. And, um, and then they were displaying him in their community in, in various different ways. And so the church now is Christ in the earth. Uh, now, that sounds heretical to some people, but if you read 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul basically says, he flat out says it, that the body of Christ is Christ in the earth. Every member is a part of Jesus. We're his body. We're his hands and his feet. He, the head, is now in heaven, but he lives through us. And together we discover him. Together we display him. Together we know him. Together we love him. Together we show him to the world. And what we have today is a very individualistic Christianity. Mm. For most people, the church just exists as sort of an event that you go to where you, you sit down, you're mostly passive, you know, you sing some songs, you worship with other people, and then you hear a sermon to get you motivated to go and live your individualistic Christian life. But that's not the way the early Christians were. That's not what the New Testament church was. It was a living, breathing community where they took care of one another. Now, I was watching uh, a program the other day on, um, I guess it was the Discovery Channel or the History Channel. It was all about gangs. Mm-hmm. And there was just one Chicago gang that was the focus of the program, and they were interviewing the gang members. And they were saying things like, these guys are my brothers. Right. We have a brotherhood. We cover one another. We got each other back. And, of course, these guys were sold out. I mean, they, they tattooed themselves to identify with the gang. Uh, some of them said, young guys in their 20s, I will die a member of this gang. Mm. He says, I will be 60 years old and I will still be a, you know, he's talking about the member. Right. And, and you look at that and you see the devotion. They have an initiation where the other gang members beat them up. You look at the devotion, you look at the sold-outness, you look at how tight they are with each other, you look at how they care about one another, and two things runs through my head. One, this is the counterfeit, the alternative, the worldly alternative to the church of the living God, what the church is supposed to be. Mm. And two, the second thing is, we don't really see this much today. Their devotion to that gang outweighs, unfortunately, the devotion of most Christians to Jesus Christ and his body. Mm. So it was just a stunner for me to watch that. Boy, if we lived in the first century, we would just be amazed at how those people took care of each other. Right. Uh, how they loved one another. And we even have reports of unbelievers recorded who, who made the statement, behold how they love one another. They were just shocked that a people could love each other so much. And here's what we're trying to do in the book. We are trying to present Jesus Christ in such a way that every reader will just have to stop and say, what a Lord Mm. I have. And in falling in love with Jesus or appreciating Christ or having a passion for him, a renewed passion or an awakening to his greatness where it touches something deep in us, that automatically will result in us loving other believers. And also because they have the same Christ that we do, and also caring for people in the world who don't have him. Right. So it really comes down to not trying to make them feel guilty that they need to love Jesus more and love people in the world more. It comes down to revealing Christ. <laughs> because if our eyes can be open to see him, then everything else takes care of itself. Right. That's how we become the walking, breathing Jesus manifestos. Yep, that's it. <laughs> to see, to hear... To be presented with the Lord is 
such a way that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our ears, and we, we just fall on our knees, and we love him. And that sets us on a journey to pursue him. Instead of all the other stuff that we're pursuing as Christians, to pursue him first and foremost. And then he kind of rubs off on us, you know. Just like uh, Peter, uh, when he was before the, the leaders in, in the Judaic world, the Sanhedrin, uh, mm-hmm. they said of Peter and John, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. <laughs> they could smell Jesus on them. You know what I'm saying? You spend right. time with someone, you love someone. And you start living by someone, and he kind of comes out of your pores, you know. Uh, <laughs> this is what the world needs. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not more knowledge. It's not more guilt. It's not more information. It's Christ. That's awesome stuff. Well, this has been great um, talking with you, Frank, and um, really fun to just talk a little bit more about the book and to hear your perspective. And um, I think that... Um, This is a message that a lot of people will resonate with, and um, we're glad you're able to be with us today. Oh, my my pleasure, my honor. I appreciate it. Great. Well, thank you for joining us here on ChristianBook.com, and uh, we hope you you will take a look at Jesus' Manifesto, Restoring the Supremacy and Sovereignty of Jesus Christ, by Frank Viola and Leonard Sweet. And God bless. Thank you.